if the end of the world truly would come during our lifetime, how would that, how could that, how should that impact our life? Would we be more urgent about our lives? Would we approach our work differently, our witness differently? Would we make different life choices? Choices about career, about school, about marriage, choices about having children, raising our children, choices about health, choices about relationships. The world says, find your reason for being in your career, in your achievement, in your learning, in your acquiring, in your family. We're encouraged to invest ourselves in the here and now, in today, in occupation, in our dreams. And that's life. That's living. The world says, you got lots of time, plenty of time. Life is about you, about your pleasure, about your fulfillment, about your happiness. You've got decades ahead. Take your time. Relax. Pace yourself. Paul proposes a different paradigm for life in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that challenges this default thinking that pervades in our world. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31, the end of that verse. This world in its present form is passing away. And then he talks and we will look at the various things, the ordinary things of life that he mentions, getting married, staying single, having kids, working, experiencing loss, experiencing joy and love and happiness, making a good purchase, reveling in the beauty of the earth, all these things, and how this perspective, our frame of reference, changes everything. We're back in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and I'm grateful to Pastor Dan for his comments last Sabbath on the first part of 1 Corinthians 7. Today, we're going to look at a few verses that are toward the end of this chapter that are life-altering, paradigm-shifting truths that Paul suggests will change our framework of life forever. These truths that we will look at impact everything. Life, dating, singleness, married life, children, working, playing, health, happiness, investment, illness, end-of-life issues, all these things, everything in life. This issue that we'll look look at today is the filter through which we process and experience life. And the picture that we project onto the world, our environment that we associate with the world is all changed by this perspective. When our map is accurate, our attitudes and our behavior are appropriate. When our assumptions are wrong, everything in life is skewed. Stephen was on a subway 
in a large metro center. It was Sunday morning. Things were rather quiet, sedate. And at a stop, on came a rambunctious group of kids. They ran onto the subway car with their dad following them. And the father sat somewhere near Stephen. And the kids went basically crazy on this subway car. Running up and down the aisleway, bumping into people, knocking people's paper and magazines that they were reading, and, and being ruckus and rude. And as Stephen sat there thinking, I can't believe what is going on here. What, look what these kids are doing. And the father is just sitting there. He's, he's doing nothing at all. Finally, Stephen, so frustrated, after a few minutes, said to the man that was near him, Sir, do you think you could control your children a little bit? They're upsetting, it seems like, everybody here on the, on the car. Oh, yeah, the father said. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. He kind of, it was as if he was kind of sort of coming out of a, 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 a dream world and suddenly aware of what was happening. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, guess, I guess I should, he said. We just left the hospital. Their mother died about one hour ago, and I guess they don't know quite what to do, and neither do I. All of a sudden, the perspective changed. The assumptions switched. And the way things really are were suddenly different. And it impacted everything. In this chapter that we'll look at, in these verses that we will study today, Paul talks about all sorts of things, as I mentioned, marriage and divorce and marital intimacy, celibacy, parenting, and a host of other practical issues. And Pastor Dan covered most of that in the sermon last week, clearly and thoroughly. But what's interesting in the, just the few verses that we will look at this week, our study... It's not so much the choice we make in these issues, like, for example, to marry or to stay single, to be celibate or to mourn, to to be enterprising and, and buying. It's not so much those issues in particular, but rather it's the motivating reason behind those issues, the assumptions that make things the way they are, that are behind the activity. That's what... Paul is talking about in the verses we'll look at today. And Paul suggests two interrelated paradigm-shifting reasons that should rock our world. This New Testament passage is the essence, in my opinion, of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And I'm so happy I get to talk with you about that. Because in these verses, Paul introduces a reality that is bedrock to our calling as followers of Christ and our existence as a church, a Seventh-day Adventist church, in these verses. Here's what he says, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 7. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Notice those words, because of the present crisis. What is this present crisis to which he refers In another translation, the New Revised Standard, it says it's an impending crisis. What is this that Paul is referring to? Is it some kind of a unique or imminent crisis that 
Corinth was facing during this time? Were, were issues perilous? Was there persecution or drought or some kind of depression that was going on in the, in the economy in Corinth? Historically, as far as we can tell today, the city at the time of the writing of this epistle was pretty much prosperous and there was some persecution happening. There were some challenges, but not much more or any more that we know of in Corinth than anywhere else in the world. So what is this impending crisis, this present crisis that Paul talks about? A couple of verses later, we're given some indication of what it is. Verses 29 and 31. 29 says, The appointed time has grown very short. The appointed time. What is this appointed time that Paul is talking about here now? And then two verses later, for the form of this world is passing away. What's Paul talking about? The second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the dramatic end of all things. He's talking about the wasting away of this planet Earth when Jesus Christ returns a second time. That's what Paul is talking about in these verses. This letter to the church at Corinth was introduced with this perspective and it's this perspective that takes us through from beginning to end. Notice some of the first verses we studied at the beginning of this year. Verses 7 and 8. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is right there. Paul is talking about that this is the time of the revealing of our Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul expects it soon. This is what he has been waiting for ever since he met Jesus Christ as his Savior. They were, Paul and the believers in Corinth, they were, in my estimation, the first Seventh-day Adventist Christians. I know I may be pushing things a little bit, but that's what they really were. They believed in Jesus' soon coming. And they were observant of God's Sabbath day. Paul was there, you read in the book of Acts, for a year and a half meeting with the church and they were waiting for Jesus to come back. Corinth was the first Seventh-day Adventist church. They were, as it says in verse number 11, they were believers upon whom the end of the ages has come. Imagine it. 54 AD. And Paul pictured Time as short. It wasn't just for Corinth when Paul wrote to the church in Rome. This is how he introduced that letter or how he said it in verse number 13. Besides this, you know that the, what the hour is, how it is full time now for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Jesus Christ is coming back. Paul believes it. It's soon. It's imminent. The return of Jesus Christ was a powerful expectation for Paul and it shaped everything he did. Everything he thought was filtered through this expectation. It was not near in the sense I don't believe that he thought it would happen within months or maybe years, but maybe so. But as Paul thought of it, but I like the way one commentator put it. He said, in the sense that since the, 
and he emphasized that, the decisive event of history has already taken place in the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. All subsequent history is a kind of epilogue, necessarily in a real sense, short, even though it may last a very long time. I like that. That's really the way life is. That's what history is. Since Jesus Christ's coming, his life for us, his death in our behalf, his ascension, everything else in history, we're just waiting now, aren't we? We're just waiting for that great event. Everything is different because Jesus has come. Everything is different. Life can't be the same anymore because Jesus has come. Especially, it can't be the same anymore because his return is at a time when we don't know. It will come at an unexpected time and at a soon time. Paul pictured it as short, just like we have thought of it as short, as Seventh-day Adventists. We have. That's been part of our history. Unfortunately, because that shortness has been rather long now people have looked at us and our leaders and our movement as well kind of dishonest they they scorned us as Seventh-day Adventists as alarmists they've mocked us as being deceived and deluded why yeah because we announced Jesus was coming back he hasn't come back yet and it's been quite a few years since that time time has continued hasn't it Longer than we expected, hasn't it? Longer than our early Advent pioneers expected, hasn't it? How many of our own loved ones have gone to rest and are sleeping in the grave who were waiting for Jesus Christ to come back? To those who point their finger at us in derision and shame, to those who would question the legitimacy and God's providential leading of this movement because of this apparent delay. We only need ask one question. Was Jesus deceived? Were the disciples deceived? How about Jesus himself? Look what he said in his dramatic response to his disciples who asked him the question, when will these things happen? You remember it was on that hillside. Jesus was summing up his ministry and he he told them that this temple would be destroyed and whatnot. And the disciples said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus said in a couple verses, verse 33 and 44, he said, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Right at the door. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Jesus said His coming is soon. It will be unexpected. And in the last words of Jesus in Scripture, He he tells us, My coming is imminent. Notice these words from Revelation 22, 12 and 20. He says, Look, I am coming, what? Soon. I'm coming soon, he said. And my reward is with me. And then again in verse number 20, he said, yes, I am coming soon. That's what Jesus finishes Scripture with. The angels of God and their message to men, the word of our Savior 
in his words of assurance, the promptings of God's Spirit on people who expressed that prompting in word that we have now in the Bible, join in a common chorus. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. And this truth impacts everything in life. Everything. Now Paul was aware that there are issues of extreme significance in life, okay? Important things like courtship, like marriage, like business, like shopping, like joyful celebrations, like painful losses. These are important things. And these important things could distract from this utmost urgency. These are all legitimate things, honorable things, expected life things, activities, but they're fleeting things. They're momentary things. And Paul is concerned that they be given the significance that is properly theirs in the light of Jesus' soon return. In the light of Jesus' soon return and judgment day. You see, that truth impacts everything. That truth changes everything. And it relativizes every other perspective. And in these verses that we'll look at today, Paul chooses several of the major areas of human experience, marriage, sadness, joy, ownership, commerce, culture. And he says, and we'll look at these verses, he says, in respect to each, in view of the soon return of Jesus Christ, believers should treat these things as if they were not of utmost importance. Why? Because Jesus is coming. That's why. Jesus is coming. He says in verse number 29, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live live as if they do not. I don't recommend that, husbands, to say to your wife when you're negligent. (laughs) That would not go over so good, huh? Well, I'm just living like I don't have a wife, like Paul told me to. (laughs) Oh, have mercy. Don't do that, guys. Don't do that. Paul isn't telling married Christians to renounce their marriage vows. He's not suggesting that married Christians should become celibate. Earlier earlier in the chapter, as Pastor Dan talked about last week, he said just the opposite. He said just, rather, Paul is saying that the reality of Christ's soon return creates a paradigm shift in Christian marriage. A paradigm shift. It means that we do marriage completely different. That's what he says. This God-inspired, this foundational core institution, he's not demeaning it, marriage, Christian marriage, He's just saying, Christians, do it different. We need to do it different because we're expecting Jesus to come. And it makes life different. We place the beauty of this institution that has been with us since God created this world. We place the beauty of this institution within the framework of 
of not merely the immediate, like what I can get out of it, what I can have because I'm in it, but rather what I can give to it in light of Jesus' return. It's a completely different way to approach it. I don't worship marriage. I don't worship my wife. I don't worship marital intimacy. I don't worship anything else. Above everything, above all else, I worship God. And the reality of his kingdom, because he's coming soon. I don't know when, but he's coming soon. And so, my words toward my wife, my actions toward my children, my affections, my ambitions are all influenced by this reality. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. His kingdom is come and His will is going to be done in my life as it is in heaven. Oh, by the way, um, in case you're worried or wondering, this does not dismiss marriage as beautiful. In fact, it really makes marriage even better. It does. It makes it even better because it's done in the context of God's will and for His glory. And so it's better. And in the same way, Paul can't be telling Corinthians, you know, not to mourn or not to rejoice. It says in verse number 30, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not. He's not saying, suck it up, you guys. Quit mourning. He's not saying quit laughing and having a good time. He's not telling them not to mourn or not to be happy. That would contradict what he said in other places right in this very book. Chapter 12, verse 26, when he's talking about the body of Christ, the church. He says, if one, verse 26 of chapter 12, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And again, he says the same thing in the book of Romans, where he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12, verse 26. And an encouraging benediction that I've loved ever since I read it, In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Joy and peace. That to me sounds like happiness. That to me sounds like Paul isn't against being joyous. Paul isn't advocating a gloomy, dismal Christian experience. But he's saying, when you're sad because you've lost a loved one, someone that you've loved and cherished, when that grips you with sadness, let the anticipation of Christ's soon return, let the the hope of that one that you've put in the grave who is now sleeping and resting until Jesus Christ returns, at which time they will be raised immortal and imperishable, let that truth buoy your spirit. Don't mourn without that hope. When pain and hardship come your way, Paul is saying, let Jesus' promised restoration bring you hope, bring you confidence. And if you rejoice, maybe you rejoice at the beauty of some natural beauty, the glory of a sunset, or the joy of family or friendship. And that comes, doesn't it? That comes. I I just... I've just been reveling in that with my family and the beauty of this earth. 
When it comes, remember that what God has in store for us will make even the best look small. Isn't that right? That's what God says to us. Remember that even the happiest won't compare. He's not trying to diminish our happiness, but just saying, hey, it's going to be unbelievable. Unbelievable. Eternity will be better than the best here. So much better that you can't even compare it. The joys are beyond our greatest elation. The peace and fulfillment that we'll have there make our challenges seem paltry. Paul is asking us to remember that nothing on earth is comparable to hearing those words, well done. Nothing compares. Enter the joy of your Lord. And he says in verse number 30, and if you buy buying something, Paul says, if you buy something, do it recognizing that it's headed for the trash heap, okay? <laughs> I don't know whether you do that every time you buy something, but that's really what's happening. It's headed for the trash heap. Or if not there, it'll be in the hands of somebody else not too long from now. He says in verse 30, those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. It's true. Stuff is temporary. Today is a preparation for tomorrow. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves, what? Treasures in heaven, he said. On Thursday, the village pastors joined our center crew who uh, clean out houses and sell it on Sunday for student aid at our Christian schools here in the Walla Walla Valley. So we joined that good crew in cleaning out a house of a lady who had passed away here in Walla Walla. It was a really nice home, a beautiful home, and it had such a manicured lawn. It was just a beautiful place. And inside, it was still quite full of a lot of possessions, special possessions, valuable things, beautiful things. But I couldn't help but think as I was there, they're only ours for a time, only ours for a season, and then they're someone else's. That's all. Someone else's possession. And so Paul is telling us, do earthly commerce with a perspective that things, even, even the neat things, even the special things, even the beautiful things, even the valuable things are only yours for a season. Just for a season. He's telling us, use things. Don't let things use you. And then verse 31, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. That one's not on the screen but you ought to look at that in your Bible because that's the core. Verse 31, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them for this world in its present form is passing away. In other words, in other words, Christians 
are to put our best investment, our supreme attention into what will be, not what is. Because what is is but for a season. Paul's words, I think, are beautifully summarized in a hymn that we all love. And I'm not a singer, but would you sing with me this song you know? I'll start it so we'll all, all, we're all on the wrong key. <laughs> Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Stephen was giving a speech someone in the front row of the auditorium was constantly talking to the person beside them constantly and Stephen's mother was behind them two rows behind this couple and she was so upset because her precious son was giving a speech And these people were being so, so disrespectful, so blatantly, openly, constantly disrespectful that she just almost was beside herself. From the moment that Stephen began his speech to the very end, this lady just kept talking to the other lady. And it discombobulated Stephen's mother, as she tried to listen, she couldn't even listen. She felt like taking out her purse and hitting those people. And afterwards, she complained to the coordinator of the conference. And she said, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see what was happening? Can you believe it? Right there on the front row. And the coordinator said, yeah, I know. She's Korean, and that's her translator. More fundamental than attitude or behavior is our paradigm. What is our paradigm? What's your paradigm? Is it the hope of Christ's return? Is it his soon coming? Because if it is, that is perspective shifting, paradigm changing, attitude altering truth. It is. It changes the way we look at everything, the way we look at personal loss or professional gain. It helps me to correctly consider the possessions that I have as trusts and purchases that I make as temporary and commerce that I'm engaged in as merely utility. Because Christ's coming is the focus of my experience It reprioritizes my relationships. One of the most important messages of this text for the church, for me, is that it raises the single life to that of dignity and value. The single life. Unfortunately, it is in our midst the attitude that if you're single, you have some kind of disability or you don't quite experience life 
as fully as someone who is married. We think of being single, we think of being unmarried as being less than whole. I mean, that's sort of the pervading attitude. Maybe you don't, but I think in culture we could probably say that. And we think of a single adult as someone who is experiencing less than they could if they were just married. Our culture insinuates that. And religious tradition kind of perpetuates that. But Paul, I don't know whether you've read these words lately, he advocates something completely different. Again, he puts it all in the imminence of Jesus Christ's return. And he says, yes, marriage is good. Marriage is good. But singleness is even better. That's what Paul says. Singleness is particularly helpful. Why? Because we're in the last days. That's what he says. We're in the last days. Yes, marriage is good. But notice what he says. Verses 32 to 35. I would like you to be free from, the con- from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Huh? Sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? Sounds pretty radical. Paul argues that for many people, it may be best to remain unmarried. Not because marriage is wrong. No, not at all. But because the single life allows Christians a freedom and flexibility to serve without distraction. And that's what life is all about, Paul says. Now, marriage... Marriage is important and we're not setting it aside. I'm married. I'm not planning on setting it aside at all. But it does. It's true. It, comes, it brings with it a whole host of concerns and responsibilities, doesn't it? Yes. For household, for family, it comes with all those. But Paul, he's a single man. Now, we don't know whether he's ever been married. Some suggest he had been for a while and his wife had died. But we don't know for sure. He was certainly not married at the time of this writing. But he sees, as a single man, advantages in being able to to devote himself to the mission of the church and bringing the good news to the world. Because he's living in anticipation of Christ's return. So here's a thought for your reflection. Just chew on this a little bit, if you would, today. What if Christians, what if you, Christian, Seventh-day Adventist Christian, thought about all your choices within that framework, your choice of marriage or your choice of singleness, within the framework of mission? Have you ever done that? Mission. What if we saw marriage as a gift from God for mission and what if we saw singleness equally as a gift from God for missions what if we looked at them both that way what if as several Bible commentators have suggested we approach the marriage covenant for those who aren't yet married approach marriage this way what is my gift from God how will marriage impact my life for God? 
How will marriage affect my service for God? What if we did it that way? And those same issues, that same cluster of, of points could be around any decision, whatever we make in life. As married family, whether we have children. And if we have children, how many children we're going to have. Because these things are enormous, aren't they? They make an enormous impact on our lives. And they do offer us innumerable opportunities to strengthen our walk with God, to become strong in Him, and to enhance our service for Him. But they also demand from us sacrificial giving. To have a wife, to have children, <coughs> is, is a, a, a responsibility and a big one, a consuming attention. But that's not the way we oftentimes think of it, is it? Not in terms of mission. But what if, what if, what if we were so serious about mission? What if we were so serious about Jesus' return? What if we were so serious about that that we actually celebrated singleness as an opportunity to serve? Wow, that'd be, That'd be a change, wouldn't it? Or what if we looked at marriage, getting married, as a chance to serve even better than if we remained single? Paul is saying, look at life. Look at everything that way. But look at, it as, look at marriage as something beyond something that will satisfy my passion or give me something a better condition. You know, all this self-centered focus. Paul says that the ultimate focus of marriage, according to this verse we just looked at, the ultimate focus of life, whether it be commerce or relationships or possessions, is strengthening the certainty of Christ's coming in my life. Here's the standard for doing life as Adventist Christians. Here it is. The standard for every association, the standard for every interest, the standard for every relationship, for every pursuit in life. Does it make the kingdom of God? Does it make the coming of Jesus? Does it make the hope of his return to this world more certain for me and for others? That's the issue. That's the standard. What if, what if we did life that way, Village Church? What if we did it that way? What if we did singleness that way? What if we did marriage that way? What if we did business that way? And what if we did celebrations that way? What if we saw nature that way? What if we saw recreation that way? What if, what if we saw shopping that way? Wow, that'd be different, wouldn't it? <laughs> each person, each one of us, our eyes fixed on Jesus and ever helping, ever trying to make his kingdom come even more real for us and for others that we associate with. Everything we do that way, for a closer walk with God, everything we do for a more dedicated service for others, everything we do so that we have more heartfelt participation in Jesus' return. What about that? Wouldn't that be something? Village Church, Adventist Christians. Really, Jesus' words go back to, I mean, Paul's words go back to Jesus. Essentially, his words aren't only true 
just for the church in Corinth, they're true for us. True for us who in the 21st century are nearer Jesus' return than we've ever been. So, how about this challenge from Jesus? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then the promise and all these things will be added to you as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope you've given us that burns in our hearts. And it's true, as Paul has warned, there's things in this world that can, then can dim that perspective. We can get so wrapped up in stuff that we don't realize the most important thing. And that is you, your kingdom, your soon coming, and your calling for us to walk in your footsteps and to hasten your return with every fabric of our being. So to that end, Lord, we're giving ourselves. Forgive us. Forgive us for our short-sightedness so often and help us to be ever more focused on that great truth that you're coming again soon. Until that day, may we walk in your footsteps and bring honor to you as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.